Hi, Anthems listeners. We've decided to do something a little different this time around. In honour of Transgender Awareness Week, we're bringing you five episodes that capture intimate, one-on-one discussions between pairs of trailblazers, creatives and activists. Amidst all the noise, it's time to platform the voices and discussions that you should be paying attention to. This conversation was also filmed, so check the episode description if you'd like to watch a lot. Anthems has always been a space for exceptional voices to celebrate and contemplate what it means to be human, and the conversation you're about to hear is no different. Welcome to Anthems Talks. This is Anthems. There isn't a trans story. There are so many narratives around being trans. That process of learning and sharing is often done through mistakes, not through just knowing these things. You know, in spaces like this, trans people can flourish and here we are being given a voice. Hi, my name is Nicola Dynan and I'm a London-based author. I was raised in Hong Kong, Kuala Lumpur, and my debut novel, Bellies, came out over summer. And hello, I'm Juno Dawson. I am an author originally from the North, but now I live on the South Coast. I'm best known for the book, This Book is Gay, but my most recent novel series, Her Majesty's Royal Coven, was, I don't like to talk about it, but it was the number one Sunday Times bestseller. <laughs> Your word of the day is responsibility. They've left us to our own devices. Yeah, they have. This is, <laughs> this is going to be so cursed. <laughs> um, and we're not just allowed to talk about what we're wearing. I've been told we do have to talk about writing. Yeah. Do you rude. like writing? No, I just like putting on makeup. And <laughs> no, 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 I do. I do. Funnily enough, I do still like writing. And it's still my, my favourite thing is a day. Unfortunately, this is no slur on the lovely people of Broccoli Productions. But my favourite day is when I have nothing in my diary and Mm. I can just go to my office and write. 12 years as a full-time writer, it's still my favourite thing. And if I don't do it, I do go a bit funny in the head. Are you one of those writers that gets most of their energy from doing writing that isn't necessarily their main project? (laughs) Um, Do you do those like creative exercises and notebooks? Like how do you get started? I I can see that you have been sent from my editor and I I do not appreciate this persecution. (laughs) So I'm at the moment, I'm just, I'm in the last kind of 50,000 words of the third Her Majesty's Wild Coven book. So I I don't know about you, but all I want to do is anything else. Mm. Like I would gladly write the copy for the back of cereal boxes at the moment. And I think it's because I've been working on this trilogy for what, four years now. I always knew what the ending was going to be. Okay. And now I actually have to do it. But what about you? Are you on task? What, what's going to come after bellies? So I've written a second book called Disappoint Me. Nice. Um, that I always describe as like a spiritual sequel to bellies. It's like a completely different set of characters. But I feel like bellies was such a retrospective exercise for me. You know, it was 26 when I started writing it. And but you don't look much more than 26 now. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm 29. Um, Ancient, so, positively, so, <laughs> nearly dead, in fact. Yeah. So it was, so I started writing it about three years ago. And I think it was such a way for me to organize all my feelings and confusion about this like very tumultuous early 20s period that I think feels like relatively universal and disappoint me with sort of a slightly different exercise where, you know, I started writing it not that long after bellies, you know, when I was 27 and was 
thinking, okay, well, what might my life look like in a few years time? What questions might I be considering in relationships when I'm 30, 31? Um, and I'm now sort of approaching that. And I wrote this book sort of imagining all these things. And I've sort of manifested all these problems that have sort of come true in my own life. But I think it's just because I was observing the way in which the women in my friendship group were talking about relationship anxieties and sort of feeling chained to heteronormativity, but not really knowing how to get out of it. So you, you finished book two. Yeah, it so it's going to be published at the start of twenty. 25 nice and so I'm like starting work on a third book which is sort of completely different excellent are you like so what is are you going like full genre science fiction you know what I am (gasps) how did you know (laughs) it's kind of like sci-fi light which Mm -hmm. I think is more my style I don't think I'll ever stray too far towards a genre yeah but it's sort of set in 1980s Hong Kong and uh, it's about an air hostess for Cathay Pacific. Immediately tasked sold. with, yeah, he's given this very strange task to collect the cigarette butts of first class passengers. And it's sort of about her marriage, but also about this very weird thing she's been she's been asked to do and what that actually means and what it's being used for have you read any emily st john mandel i haven't so i think she's like my favorite sort of contemporary author writing now and and it, she does that so well that it's kind of genre but also kind of not and mm. there's a real sort of humanity in it i think station 11 would be the one to start with and that that book made me want to never write again because I was like, well, I'm never, never going to top that. Yeah. You know, I I think so much of storytelling is just, you know, about showing, you know, familiar problem from a new perspective. And I think I've just been attracted to sci-fi being able to like twist reality in a certain way that exposes the reality in which we live. And I think you can say as much about the times we live in through genre than you can. So I I wrote a book called The Gender Games, Mm. which is about my transition I think I actually concealed more of myself in that book of essays than I did in Her Majesty's Royal Coven, which is Mm -hmm. ultimately about trans-exclusionary feminism. You know, the coven is the ultimate female-only space. And that that coven, while yes, they are witches and they can fly, really was just about me trying to wrap my head around the fact that there are women in the world who would exclude me from that space Mm -hmm. and you know what that means for me is the excluded party but also I really wanted to try and understand what what it is those people particularly women because I don't really care what men think full stop sorry but um I I wanted to know why it was some women were so repulsed by me kind of and and so actually that book even though it's a fantasy novel absolutely first and foremost it is a fantasy trilogy Actually, it really, it was hugely, hugely cathartic for me. And I think that's why I keep coming back to genre, why I I would love one day to write a novel like Belly's, something that was like legit, Um, like, come on, women's prize, come on, women's prize, give it to a trans woman. Although Tori... Isn't that a scary thing, though? I have thought, um, you know, if I was ever lucky enough to be nominated for a prize like the women's prize, I'm like, oh, God, is the backlash that comes with it like with what happened with Tori Peters Peters. I'm like is that even worth it you know to read I I, I feel like sort of two minds about did you read that open letter that was it was like the one that was like signed by like several dead women um (laughs) amazing (laughs) um like (laughs) it was so ridiculous but it was so so transphobic Mm -hmm. um and it was the kind of transphobia that you 
sometimes know people are thinking, but don't often say. And mm -hmm. when you experience those small little things, you know, those transphobic microaggressions, you almost wish they would actually say what they were thinking because it's so much easier to call out. On that front, I was like, okay, well, this is actually a really horrible thing to read as a trans person about, you know, another trans author. On the other hand, I'm like, oh, at least it's like, at least it's straight up. And, you know, at least it reveals the whole of the ugly truth about what some people really think about trans writers yeah. and it was ridiculous it was like a painted detransition baby as like a conspiracy you know a, it's a novel about a conspiracy between two men to rob a woman of her baby and I was like that's like the most like that's the strangest reading of that book. of that book which you know speaks so centrally to ideas of motherhood what it means to care for another person what it is to feel alienated in your own body so to make it sound like a grand heist of a baby is so absurd like delusional it was fully so delusional, delusional. But I do think the Women's Prize and having worked alongside various people from the Women's Prize, I think their heart's in the right place. And I think what what is good for me is that I do think my novel or your novel or Lawrence and John Joseph or anybody, any trans writer's novel would be considered. And so, you know, I don't think a book like Her Majesty's Royal Coven is ever going to trouble the Women's Prize. But it's reassuring for me to know that it would. There's a sort of a weird privilege to being a sort of a cis-passing trans woman who who has sort of like gone through a medical transition and also a legal transition because I make life quite easy for the Women's Prize because I live legally and biologically as a woman. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think what the Women's Prize has to reckon with is what do you do with non-binary trans writers? What do you do with writers who are gender fluid or are somewhere in the middle of a gender spectrum? It was predictable. What happened to Tori was yeah. so predictable. And I, I felt Detransition Baby did deserve a shot at the Women's Prize. But then I think Bellies does. I think we all do. And I think the Women's Prize does understand that. I do. I, I have faith I in the I prize. I think I was really reassured at how they stood behind her. Yeah. And that was nice to see. But even I think with institutional support, it doesn't remove the dread of, you know, 100%. the storm. You know, yeah. I think, sure, you have the shelter, but it's still really scary to go outside. Yeah, and I mean, it's happened to me on, on smaller things. I, th I think especially anything around International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. So I, I've, I did things at the South Bank Centre and I've done, I opened the Feminist Bookshop in Brighton and they had to get security in. Wow. And that's so depressing. Yeah. I mean, really, luckily, nothing happened at either of those events. But the fact that an independent bookshop in Brighton had to hire a bouncer. Mm. So it's you're right, it's not the same. So whereas we are being offered, as trans women, we're being offered some of the same opportunities I sometimes wonder if the organisers do understand, A, what they're getting themselves into and B, kind of what we're getting ourselves into. Yeah. You would think that um, artistic spaces, creative spaces would be by default queer or queer friendly. Mm -hmm. But I think there's a very specific issue when it comes to trans people and especially trans women, because I think trans men are such an inconvenient problem for kind of trans exclusionary yeah. feminists that I think the, the problem is, I, we we all know, there are some people working in the arts who have really negative view of trans women and that's, that's what makes it hard. And when I've been to America and Australia, I've been very lucky to be able to take my books abroad and there's bewilderment 
that there is this issue of kind of this trans exclusionary element because it feels like there is a liberal left who are very queer friendly and very inclusive. Mm. And then there is a very sort of hard right kind of who would consider us to be freaks and weirdos. Whereas in the UK, it feels like we've got this really specific problem where there are people who are very prejudiced against trans people, but would still align with the political left. Yeah. And that I've not really experienced that anywhere else except the UK, which is why I think, you know, in spaces like this, trans people can flourish and here we are being given a voice. Mm. But it feels like, you know, it's been a long time since I've written for The Guardian. I wouldn't trust them to not follow up anything I wrote with another writer being why I'm wrong or why, you know, we have to have a nuanced conversation about my concerns. I just have questions, questions and concerns. And and that's really frustrating sometimes that it feels like we haven't quite got the same access to the arts that we might have if we were cisgender. At the same time, I really value that I'm able to tell stories through the lens of transness and, you know, can appreciate how much value that brings to my writing, whether I'm writing specifically on transness or in something else. So in that sense, I'm really grateful to it. And in a more immediate sense, you know, in publishing, for example, I've found the environment to be relatively liberal and relatively accepting. You know, my editor is trans and that's something I feel really grateful for. That's amazing. Um, My agent is also a person of color which is also something I really value and it's actually quite rare in the publishing Mm. industry to be honest I have found people within those spaces that seem to like really understand and who are open to the ideas that my books touch on and most importantly don't just see me as a trans writer which I think is always a danger when you're writing from a marginalized position that you're only really seen as that and Sometimes that has a benefit, you know, I mean, this conversation between you and I, you know, we're probably both chosen to be here together as two trans women. So it has some benefits there. But then the worry is, oh, do people think I can only write on transness or, you know, do they see a book like Bellies, which much more than being trans is about being young. And it's not really just a book about being trans and you worry sometimes that that's all people will take away from it. Mm. Have you found that with your work? Well, I'm, I'm going to be very careful with this next story. So I was invited out to a lunch a little bit before the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I think there was this sort of assumption that I would sort of segue from writing young adult fiction, which I did for 10 years and loved and will go back to, I imagine, one day. But one day that I would do something for grown-ups, you know, that I would. Yeah. And that came about because I, I wanted to write about being in my 30s. You know, it was t- it was time for me to sort of muse on those things. But I did get taken out by a nice publisher and it was very nice. And I was, I pitched them Her Majesty's Royal Coven, basically, mm-hmm. which I'd, I'd just started sort of writing and thinking about it. And so I was like, right, this is what I want to do. It's kind of, it's all a big sort of allegory for sort of trans-exclusionary feminism, but it's about witchcraft. And, and they were like, that's great. But have you read Queenie? Could you do like a trans Queenie? And I was like, or like a trans Bridget Jones. And I was like, oh no, this lunch is a trap. And nothing about my output as a writer had suggested that I was best placed to write Mm. something like Candice Carty-Williams. So I was kind of like, I just, other than the fact we're both from marginalized communities, I don't really get it. And I realized there was a danger in Mm -hmm. becoming sort of 
the, again, the trans one. And this is why I'm so, so grateful. Every time I go to the bookseller and I remember your announcement in the bookseller and I was like, good, because the answer I think is always more because then I think for readers as well, it helps them to understand that there isn't a trans story, mm -hmm. that there are so many narratives around being trans. And I think that's so important that there isn't just one or even two of us, because I think that it can be can really stifling. Stifling, but also it sort of lessens the pressure that I think a lot of writers feel of having to authentically represent an experience in its totality as if you know that's like one thing mm -hmm. a book can do you know bellies and ming who's a trans woman and is one of the two main characters in bellies is not going to represent the trans experience even just in the uk she is able to skip past you know the inhumane cues in the nhs because she has the funds to She's able to access facial feminization surgery. She's able to do all of these things because of her financial position. And I think for me as a writer, I wanted to write a character who wasn't facing as many of those structural hurdles um, because I thought that was interesting. You know, in the absence of all these structural hurdles, what difficulties does a trans person still face? What is the extent of the shame they might have internalized through going in an, up in an environment that's hostile to trans mm -hmm. people? But whilst I was writing that, I was also worried, like, shit, like, are people going to be mad? Because it's like, oh, this doesn't represent me. And it's like, okay, well, you know, it, it maybe one character doesn't have to represent right? everyone. Yeah. Um, and you should be able to write about characters that have access to those things and characters that don't. And that should be my choice as long as I'm not, like, grossly misrepresenting the yeah. situation. So, you know, in the book, for example, Ming acknowledges that she has access to those things. And so, you know, I address it, but I was like, I don't want to feel limited in the characters I write because there's this disproportionate burden on me as a trans author to have to represent all of the trans experience. And likewise, I don't want to have to write about transness forever. Mm -hmm. I'm writing my third book specifically, not because it's an active want to not, you know, touch on the trans experience, but because I just don't think I should be locked in and I think it's time for me to write something different yeah it's nice I like that Ming was flawed as well that was my and, and gosh I'm really going for it I'm not even drunk and um, like <laughs> that was my bugbear about Pose mm. which is while it was somewhat written by Janet Mark and Our Lady J especially when it wasn't a trans writer it felt like the trans women in Pose were like angels from heaven who yeah. were sent to earth to teach cis people yes, about kindness it's, it's like the like didactic mm. element to it that I found quite striking yeah that like, like they, they're like all this like wisdom and knowledge yeah that they just seem to have like installed in their brain like Microsoft Word or something and suddenly you know they're here to impart it on us but it's like no that that process of learning and sharing is often done through mistakes not through just knowing these things yeah and I think in Her Majesty's Royal Coven so the, the character of Theo is the trans character mm -hmm. and so for the first book she is this lovely golden egg thing that cis people regard so she is a young trans witch who arrives at the coven and the existing witches who are all in their 30s disagree about whether or not she should be allowed in the coven and quite deliberately she doesn't have a voice in the first book she's mute it's quite allegorical she doesn't have a voice because she's a trans kid do you see what i did there and then so by the end of the first book she discovers her voice she embraces both her gender and the fact she is a nascent witch 
And then in the second book, she has her own chapters. She gets to speak, but she's also kind of a dickhead. And I really like that. She's so oblivious to what's going on around her because she's so fixated on understanding who she is and what she can be that she really does fail to see that there is a plot happening right under her nose. And then in the third book, which comes out the year after next, she gets even darker when, because there's this big prophecy about what her presence means because there shouldn't ever be a trans witch. I want to explore that. How dark can I take the character mm. of Thea? How how villainous can she be? Because I think, I still think in the British media, trans people are villains. So I think that's what I want to explore. Like, what if she just does decide, right, you all hate me, so I'm going to be hateful. And maybe I will get cancelled, but maybe not again, because it's in fantasy. It's in a, that fantasy shield gives me such freedom because at the end of the day, if somebody says, you know, oh, this is a bit transphobic or a bit problematic, I'm like, she's a witch, Jill. None of it's real. It, it's, it's just not transphobic. I think what, what ends up feeling transphobic is limiting mm-hmm. um, trans characters based on expectations of perfection or, you know, expecting them to be you know, like those women pose, you know, descended from heaven to teach us what's right and wrong. Um, and, you know, that's just not how people are. Is there anything you wouldn't do with a trans character? Like is, because obviously I'm not going to name any names, but there are some authors who mm. depict trans people as just predatory perverts, which is such obviously a prejudiced, horrific stereotype. But is, I mean, could we, as trans authors, could we do something different there? Yeah, and, you know, to be honest, I think Belly's kind of does that. I think Ming, one word that always sticks with me is the description of trans people as narcissists. I think that gets sort of, you know, lobbed at trans people a lot. And I think Ming in Belly's is prone to a lot of narcissistic behavior, but I think what I try to do with Bellies is, okay, allow Ming to do those things, allow her to inhabit the stereotypes that are often levied against trans women, but add context for how she's feeling. You know, what is it about feeling very alone, feeling like you have problems that no one really understands that can make someone quite self-involved and inward looking? So I feel like there was no, there's nothing I would necessarily stray away from but I think the power is in the context and where we have seen trans people and trans characters grossly misrepresented or represented in a way that feels offensive to us. And at least to me, I find it's usually because the, the context isn't there and it's not interesting. How do you feel about people writing outside their own experiences? Do you think there's a limit to it? I generally feel like everything's on the table for a writer. But, you know, the further away you move from your own experience, the greater responsibility you have to do the work to close that gap. And, you know, the reality is is that a lot of cis writers writing trans characters don't necessarily do the work to close that gap. But if you read a book like The Argonauts by Maggie Nelson, you know, and she writes very beautifully and thoughtfully about her sort of queer family and her relationship with Harry Dodge, who, you know, is trans. And that felt perfectly okay to me. I think for me, the best the best conversation I had was with an amazing author called Tanya Byrne. We were out and I just, just started work on what be- eventually became Wonderland, which is my retelling of Alice in Wonderland. And at the time, Alice was trans and mixed race. And, and Tanya just said, 
why? And I was like, okay. And I was like, do you want an answer? And she was like, yeah, yeah, why? And I was like, because like, I think it will be nice for people to see like a mixed race Alice. Mm -hmm. And I want to kind of like do my bit. And she was like, you don't have to. Mm. Like there are so many writers of color. You don't need to help out. We don't need your help. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a really good point. You know, the character was trans and really Alice was my first trans main character. And so I actually, it was more important for me to go away and think about what that would mean to Alice rather than trying to imagine what it would like for her to also be a girl of color as well. So, so yeah, I'm that, I definitely a Tanya Byrne a cocktail at some point because I think that's kind of where I sit, which is if you've got a really good answer to that why question. Yeah. So for example, in Her Majesty's Wild Cover, one of the like six narrators, one of them's Leone, who is a woman of colour. And with why, there was a very quick answer, which is, well, because this book is about the coven and the coven is an allegory for feminism. Mm. So for me, actually, it's vital to write about the fact that Leone has experienced oppression differently to her white friends. And also it says a lot about her white friends that they can't always see that she's experienced the world differently. Mm -hmm. So in Her Majesty's Royal Coven, while obviously it was really on my mind about writing Leone, I did feel it was important that she was included or actually I wasn't writing the book I was setting out to write, mm. which is about the flawed notion of that there is one feminism that fits every woman. Yeah, I think tokenistic diversity is always very obvious. What else can we talk about? Oh, TV. Yeah. Bellies is being adapted. Yeah, so... Um, Are you adapting it? So I'm doing the screenwriting, <sighs> which is really interesting. I do think prose is what I am always going to naturally gravitate towards. I think when I compare it to writing stuff with screen, I think language is just so fun. And, you know, I think language is a tool. You know, you use it to tell a story, but it's also a toy. Like, you play with it, and I think there's more room to do that within a novel but I find with writing for screen, you do lose that a bit because you have to relinquish control to a director. You have to leave room for actors to express. And so suddenly, you know, you don't hold all the puppet strings. And that's why I always come back to novels. Yeah. You know, I, I'm so hugely grateful for the opportunities I've had in TV and film. It enabled me to buy my house. Mm. It paid for my face. You know, it, it's been it's been brilliant. But I think I will always come back to novels for that reason, which is it's so intimate that when it's just you, word, and and your editor and, and sometimes your agent as well, it feels so yours. It feels like you have real ownership of it. Whereas, you know, with TV, you might think you're just working with a producer, but then they will show it to somebody else. And before you know it, you're in this meeting room with like 13 people and somebody will say, but what if one of them was a rabbit? And you're like, it's about World War II, John. You know, it's kind of like, well, why, why would there be a rabbit? And, and and it kind of feels like there's a lot of cooks spoiling the broth sometimes yeah. in TV land. But I mean, that's probably, you know, some sense of like being an anxious author and seeing 100%. anyone messing with your shit to be like, <laughs> oh, you're ruining it. And you try to be um, really calm, like, and I'm yeah. really happy for this work to be adapted. But if you change anything, I will cry. And I also think, you know, being a writer is like such a, it's an isolating job, but for me in a really nice way. Like I like, I like, I, I always really suffered 
and struggled in traditional working environments. So what so, did you do before you so were a writer? I was a lawyer. Um, <gasps> yeah, I knew this. I didn't know if you'd made it to the law and you studied law. No, yeah. So I did a law conversion after I graduated from uni and then did train as a lawyer. Did you wear a power suit? I can um, really see that. No, actually. Oh. I, I never wore a power suit. That's disappointing. Thankfully. Shame. Um, but it was, as, it was just, yeah, I always like to describe it as my flop era. Um, <laughs> so I was like, what, what was I doing? Um, just flopping upwards as yeah, a lawyer, and presumably. And the positive way I look at it is I think being a lawyer actually informed how I write and that it's like tends to be quite like clear and concise and I really try to like maintain that in my writing and also I wrote bellies whilst I was still working or at least wrote the first draft while I was still working and so I always think of like my law firm as difficult as they could be were like my patrons for my first novel. <laughs> nice. it's, like, it's like a nice Supporting way. Supporting the arts. Yeah, sort of like bringing back like a bygone era Corporate of patronage in the arts. <laughs> but, you know, I think, yeah, I always struggled in those kinds of environments that were very constricting. And so suddenly a world where I don't have to deal with colleagues, I was like, sign me up. But <laughs> it is nice to kind of be surrounded by more people when you're working with TV and to be like discussing ideas in a way you don't get to do but I still always want my main thing to be writing prose. The gift is when you find those collaborators within film and TV who are just completely in your wavelength. Mm. And I'll shout out my little friend Joe Inez, who's a producer that I work with a lot. And as soon as we met, we met at this random meeting at ITV Studios. And then a year later, he was like, I don't know if you remember me. And I was like, of course I remember you. And then we've worked together ever since. And so I think that is something that you would never have with a novel where, you know, I think Joe's coming down to Brighton next week and we're going to just brainstorm some things wow. for a new TV show we're working on. And and that's how lovely. It's like, it feels, there's something almost childlike about it. Because at the end of the day, you're talking about made up characters. Yeah. We might as well just have a pair of Barbies in our hands and be talking about, well, my Barbie's going to kill your Barbie, kind of. I, I like both. I like that. I, I, I do feel like they're two separate careers. I love my TV job and I love my mm. book job. And I wouldn't want to choose between them. I do love how the emotional experience of reading a script can feel very similar to the emotional experience of reading a novel, though. It's like even though these two things take quite different forms, the experience is often the same. And like the human imagination in both forms does so much of the legwork. Who do you have in mind for Tom and Ming? If you could have anybody in the world. So that's the thing. It's like, I think... I just don't know who these people are because they're going to be young. Mm -hmm. They're going to be like actors fresh out of acting school. And I think that's so incredible. I yeah. was like, oh, it just, I won't know. It was really funny though. I had a meeting um, with a production company when we were at the bidding stage and they gave loads of casting suggestions. And one of the casting suggestions for like Rob was like Harry Styles. I was like, one, like Harry Styles is like in his thirties, <laughs> two, like he doesn't have time for this. Like he's like, he's very busy. Like, I don't think he wants to be in bellies. But, you know, I think part of the joy of working um, on something like bellies, um, and it's nice that I don't know what their faces are or what they could be or that I can't even really imagine. I other than that. I, yeah, yeah, other than I have a rough sense of the fact that Ming does need to be Asian and Ming obviously does need to be a trans woman. Tom's just like a white dude. So, you know, we won't have trouble. Yeah. Um, finding one of those but <laughs> they're everywhere yeah, yeah. Just, we could go outside and get one now yeah. but you know with with Ming it has to feel like it very specifically represents yeah. her both you know in terms of her ethnicity and also her gender identity thank you Nicola thank you so much it's so nice to hang <laughs> 
For resources about the issues discussed, and to see video content from all episodes of the Anthems Talks series, visit the episode description. Anthems Talks was executive produced by B. Duncan, with production from Talia Augustidis and Lucy Carr, and sound engineered by Ben Williams. Video production from Thunder Video, and video editing by Eleanor Bamba. This is a Broccoli Production.